Let's open our Bibles uh, this morning to uh, Matthew, Matthew chapter 2. Now you'll notice, if you got the e-bulletin, I didn't put Matthew chapter 2, 19 through 23, I put Luke. And the reason I did that is because last week, we only got through the first 18 verses of chapter 2 of Matthew, which really recorded for us these magi, or these uh, astrologers that had come from the east, and had come to worship Jesus, and remember they came to um, Herod. Herod wanted to find out where they, uh, where they were going, what they were doing, and in the process of doing that, he decided that he wanted to worship Jesus too. Isn't that interesting? Herod would want to come and worship him as well. What a benevolent fellow. But we know that he actually wanted to destroy Jesus because the Hebrew scriptures spoke and prophesied for hundreds of years, even a few thousand of this one who would come, this one Messiah who would come. And so uh, we know that the Magi were were wise and they left uh, being... um, uh, awoken by a dream from the Lord, and they, they, left, uh, they left Herod and did not tell him where the child was. And we know that uh, as a result of that, uh, the Lord uh, spoke to Joseph in a dream and had his, him and Mary and Jesus as a, as a young child to flee to Egypt because God knew what was coming next, and that was Herod's decree to kill all of the Hebrew children from two years old downward in the land or in the city of Bethlehem where Herod knew Jesus was. And so they fled to Egypt. And then once Herod had died, uh, the Lord spoke to Joseph again in a dream and told him to return. But when he returned, he found that Herod's son, Archelaus, was now in charge where his father, in, in, in his reign, and so they decided instead of going back to Bethlehem, they went back up to Nazareth where Joseph's home was, where his carpentry business was, and they stayed up there. And that really brought us to verse 19, and so let's just read it now because uh, we're going to get into Luke chapter 2. And the reason for that is because after we get to the end of verse 23 here, chronologically what happens is the material, the events of Luke chapter 2, specifically verse 39 through 52. Remember again that the Gospels are a tapestry. And so of all the Gospels, they can be put together and they can form a chronology. And many have taken that to hand and have come up with a chronology, and so Just for Jesus' life, I wanted us to see his life in that chronology before we continue on in Matthew next week in chapter 3. And so notice with me now in verse 19 of chapter 2 of Matthew. We'll finish this chapter. It says, Now when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared uh, in a dream, notice, to Joseph in Egypt. And when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Uh, to Joseph in Egypt. And, and this is the third time that we see uh, the, third, uh, the third time of a total of four times that God is going to speak to Joseph in a dream. The first time was when Joseph heard that Mary was pregnant, and naturally he needed to have some assurance that, uh, 
you know, whether to go through with the marriage or not, because this has never happened before. Can you imagine that? It's never happened before, and it never will happen again. There's never been a virgin that has conceived without the intervention of another man. It's just, it's not possible. But this happened. And so Joseph needed to be encouraged, and the Lord told him in a dream to do that. And we notice also, after the Magi's interview with Herod, that they, after they had departed, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream again and telling him to take his wife and young son to Egypt until Herod had passed away. And he spoke to him the third time in the verse that we're looking at right now, uh, telling him that he could come back now. And we're going to see in verse 22 also that God is going to warn him in a dream again uh, and that he would not come back into uh, Judea, he would go back up to Nazareth. And so the Lord appearing to him four times. And for some reason, dreams seem to be the way that God communicated to Joseph. And you know, with every person, it's a little bit different. You know, some people, God does certain things with individuals. And, and to me, that's encouraging because when he wants to get something across to you and I, he knows how to knock on our door. He knows what he needs to do. And we don't even have to fret or worry about it. I mean, really understand that, that if we believe that God is almighty God, he is able at any time to speak to you. Do you understand? It's not like you have to strain and, and, and put all the thoughts out of your mind and go, okay, I, I, think I'm, I think I'm feeling something. I think I'm, wait a minute, what is that? You know, it's not like that. It doesn't have to be like that. You don't have to str stress and fuss about this. Just pray and say, God, open my heart, open my eyes. And when he's ready, he's going to do it. He did it to me, and believe me, I'm the biggest knucklehead around. When he is ready to speak, he will speak to you, and we'll look at that shortly in many different ways. But notice in verse 20, it says that, uh, Arise, take the young child and his mother, go to the land of Israel. For those who sought, notice those. And of course, we're speaking of not only Herod, but his soldiers, until um, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. And so then he arose and he took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. And again, I love the fact that Joseph was immediately obedient to the Lord. He didn't wait. He didn't wait. He was immediately obedient. And like we were saying before, like I was sharing with you earlier, God can speak in many different ways. He can speak to you through his word, which is usually the way God will choose to do that, through his revealed word that he has given to us that you're holding in your lap. He can speak to you in that still small voice in your heart, which you will recognize as you grow in Christ and as you become more familiar with the way God speaks to your heart. He can do that. He can also speak to you through your circumstances, through changes in your life. He can speak to you. He can speak to you in a dream like he did with Joseph, like he did with Joseph back, the other Joseph in Genesis, like he did with Pharaoh, like he did with Nebuchadnezzar, these pagan idolatrous men. God would even speak to them in a dream. Yes, God can do all those things. But in all of these things, notice that God will not violate his character or his word. And that's something to be very careful of. Because when we were over in Bulgaria uh, years ago, they were big on dreams. And any dream was considered to be God speaking to me. But what they failed to realize is that God doesn't violate his character and his word in a dream that he might give you. Let me give you an example. If the Lord told you 
that you needed to you know, set your neighbor's house on fire, then would you believe that that's from the Lord? Of course not. You know, but they, anything goes, and anything can't go. It must go through the filter of God's character and his word. Because if that dream is leading me to do something that's violating God's revealed will, it's not from the Lord. Now, there are exceptions in the scripture, and the one that we looked at recently in Genesis 22 is a grand exception where God told Abraham to sacrifice his only son. We know that God abhorred child sacrifice. That's what the pagans did, but God tested him, and God allowed that, and perhaps uh, in part to uh, show a, uh, to establish a type, if you will, but so far as I know, God has not spoken to anybody to kill their son or daughter. And I'm glad because I'd really have a tough time with that. But when the Lord tells us to do something, what is your response? Because delayed obedience is what? It's disobedience. Sometimes obedience or the lack thereof can mean the difference between life and death, can it? In the case of Mary and Joseph and Jesus as an infant, it, it was. Because remember, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 13, it says, When they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother, because Herod is seeking to kill him. So this, his response to this was critical. If Joseph just said, Well, I don't really believe that, then it's very possible. I mean, you know what I'm saying. It, 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 life and death was on the line here. But he responded immediately. He woke up and immediately they got out of there. Do you understand? And so we can trust the Lord in his timing. And he very rarely will speak to you today about something that he really wants you to do next year. Because if he wants you to do it now, he's going to tell you. He doesn't have to play games with us. And, and I've experienced that too. For a year, I hemmed and hawed about coming on staff here when Jeff and Linda, you know, Jeff had invited me on staff back in 20, uh, 2002 and it was a year later that I just, I, I just hemmed and hawed about it and I came up with all these excuses. And I was disobedient because I think the Lord wanted me then to go. But obedience is better than sacrifice. Remember when Samuel spoke to King Saul. He says, has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you, Saul, from being king. And Saul had made these many disastrous decisions of his own flesh and it brought upon him this... Uh, this proclamation of God that, you know, Saul, you've been a rebellious man and I'm not going to put up with it. He was not obedient. David was obedient, but Saul was not obedient. But notice verse 22, but when he heard that Archelaus was reigning now, when Joseph heard that, reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod the Great, he was afraid to go there and notice being warned in a dream, he turned aside into the region of Galilee. And so he came and he dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, saying, He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, you won't find the prophet that spoke this in the scripture, 
um, he shall be called a Nazarene. It's not in any of the prophets that we have in the Bible, but it might be derived from what was spoken in Isaiah chapter 11. Um, and, and what the prophet may have done is combined a lot of different things that they, that they knew at the time. And, um, and certainly Isaiah 11 verse 1 uh, hints at him being a Nazarene, and we can look at that. It says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and, uh, and a branch or a netzer shall grow out of his roots. A netzer is, is an insignificant green sprout coming out of, out of, the, uh, out of the, the rod, out of the ground. An insignificant sprout coming out. And, and the word is netzer, and it sounds very similar to Nazareth. Because Nazareth was an insignificant place. It was up in Galilee of the Gentiles, and the Roman garrisons were located up in that town, and everyone was guilty by association. And that's why in John chapter 1, Nathaniel said, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was one of those towns that nobody looked upon. They're just like insignificant, insignificant. Where do you come from? Hopefully it's not Nazareth. Right? That's the idea. And so now let's look over into, turn with me to chapter uh, 2 of Luke, because immediately following what we just read is what happens next. And again, my purpose in doing this, and it will end after today, is to just give a a chronology, because as we look at this passage in Luke chapter 2, 39 through 52, we're going to see the only place in the Bible where it mentions Jesus's adult, you know, his, um, his teenage years. I mean, everything is talking about the nativity, where he was born, the circumstances surrounding his birth. You know, Matthew and Luke gives us all of that information. And John gives us information about his pre-incarnate state, that he always existed before he was born into the Virgin Mary. But this is the only place in the Bible that speaks of when he was 12 years old. There's no mention of him from like two years old up until 12. And then there's no mention of him from 12 until he's about 30 years old. But we know that he submitted himself to his parents, and he probably served with his father Joseph, his father, earthly father Joseph, in his carpentry business. So there's not a lot known. This is the only place it, it, it records it. And there's some interesting things in here we're going to look at quickly. But notice, when they had, uh, so when they had performed all things, and, and the things that they're talking about here are, are the circumcision of Jesus, him being presented in the temple, These things, when they had performed all things according to the law of the Lord, and Mary, uh, certainly, um, having given birth to Jesus, eight days later, according to Leviticus chapter 12, you can read that if you want to, we don't have time today, but in Leviticus 12, it tells us that she is to be purified for, uh, uh, what is it, uh, 32 days, or 33 days. So after Jesus is born, eight days later, he gets circumcised in the temple, and that's what happened. And then another, you know, going forward, you know, 33 days, then she comes and they dedicate Jesus at the temple, and she offers her offering of turtle doves. They were poor, and they, didn't, they couldn't offer a sheep or a goat. They had to offer turtle doves or two young pigeons. That's how poor Mary and Joseph were, because that was their offering that they offered. 
And so verse 40, And the child grew, notice, and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Notice that Jesus grew like any other young Jewish young male. He grew in stature and wisdom. Even though he was 100% God, he was also 100% man. And it's important that Jesus, the last Adam, it's important that he defeated Satan in his humanity and not in his deity. That's why the Bible calls him the last Adam, because certainly he could have defeated him in his deity, but he came as a representative of us, showing as the perfect man that he could deny himself and submit himself to the Lord and resist those things that the devil would bring upon him and ultimately pay the price for our sins. In fact, Hebrews tells us, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. See, if I was tempted and I was Jesus, I would fall flat on my face, but not Jesus. He willfully submitted his life to his Father. In Romans 8, it tells us, For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, that the righteousness, uh, righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so Jesus defeated Satan in his humanity, and it needed to be so. And then he could pay the price for us as God on the cross. But notice verse 41, it says, But his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And we know that the Passover was one of three feasts that all Jewish males were to attend every year. Passover was one of them, coupled with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, the Feast of Pentecost, and also the Feast of Tabernacles. This means that Jesus, that this was his twelfth time going up to Jerusalem with his parents to celebrate the Passover. And they would travel with their relatives and other members and their acquaintances, and they would travel in caravans. And they did that for a multitude of reasons. Number one, they could keep an eye on each other, but there were robbers along the road. And that road from Nazareth all the way down uh, to Jerusalem was a treacherous path. And there were robbers along the way. So having a group of people insulated you from robbery and all these other things. But they did it as families. Together they went up. And so Jesus now, this is his 12th Passover, think of it. His 12th Passover. He knew the city. He knew the reason for the feast. He knew those who were genuine in their worship. He also knew those who were phonies. At 12 years old, the Lord was giving him wisdom. As the Son of God, he had wisdom. And it says, and when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem. Because wherever you go in Israel, whenever you go up to Jerusalem, you're going up. Because it's on a mountain range. Moriah is a mountain range. And Jerusalem is a city on top of that mountain range. So you're always going up. And when they had finished the days, it was a seven-day seven feast, so they were there at least for seven days, that as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother did not know it. And I, I love this. It's just an interesting thing as you look into specific words. And I would encourage you to do that. Get a concordance and look up these words in their original language. And you can do that with a Strong's Concordance. Maybe sometime we'll talk about how to go about that, maybe have like a Bible study kind of 
thing for a couple Sundays on how to study the Bible. But uh, this word lingered is really interesting because it, it's kind of interesting. Uh, it's hypomeno, which means to undergo or endure or bear a trial. It speaks of fortitude and perseverance and even suffering. So Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem, but the word has a connotation to it that, that, that is really interesting. I mean, did he feel forsaken by his parents? Knowing that they had left him, was he, you know, what was he feeling? Did, did he feel forsaken? Where did he stay at night? Think about it. Jerusalem is packed with people. Where did he stay at night? Who fed him? Did he eat at all? Maybe he fasted for those three days. We don't know as a young person, as a 12-year-old boy, he's probably eating them out of house and home. And probably two gallons of milk every day. Were people speaking behind his back? I wonder. These are just thoughts. Because they knew that this one, believe me, there was a lot of noise about Jesus and Mary and Joseph. And they're like, yeah, right, she had a virgin birth. (laughs) Yeah, we believe that, right? So now Jesus is there by himself in the temple. And you got to believe that people are talking. Is that the one? Is that the one? Is that the illegitimate son? And so Jesus, is it possible that this word, again, I think of this word, he lingered behind. Was he enduring some of these things? Were there people talking behind his back, kind of looking down upon him as if he's some kind of bastard son? It's possible, but we don't know for sure. But notice verse 44, but supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. And so when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Can you imagine Mary and Joseph, you know, traveling along? Did anybody see Home Alone? Remember when uh, the the husband and wife are on the plane, they're going to Paris, and the the mom is just feeling there's just something not quite right. And all of a sudden, (gasps) Kevin! Right? They left their son back in, in the United States, and they're somewhere over the Atlantic flying. Can you imagine Mary and Joseph at some point? They're looking around. They looked at, it, looked at each other and says, we lost God. <laughs> I mean, think of that. God entrusted Jesus into their care, telling him what, who he was going to be, the Savior of the world, the Messiah. And can you imagine the, the utter horror at that moment when they realized he was not with the group because the kids would all be hanging out and they'd be probably, you know, riding the camels or whatever and doing stuff. And, and, and Mary and Joseph were like, ah, the kids are having fun. Let's just go. And so they're on their way and they do their thing. They get a, a, a day out and they're like, um, where's, where's Joshua? And they start looking around. They can't find him. They lost God. <laughs> and can you imagine the horror? Have you, parents, have you had that moment when you've been in a public place? We have a couple times, and it's the most horrifying thing in the world to have your child in a very busy public place, and all of a sudden they slip off and you can't find them. And you're frantic. You're turned white. You know, you're getting on the intercom, you know, and you're, you know, <laughs> it's a horrifying experience. So Mary and Joseph are naturally very agitated. And so now, so it was that after three days, they found him 
in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both, notice, listening to them and also asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and his answers. I wonder what he was questioning them about. Did Jesus begin preparing them, talking about the Old Testament scriptures concerning the Messiah? Did he ask them what the requirements were for the Messiah? We don't know, but I know this. I am sure Jesus did not waste his time or their time. Whatever he spoke, whatever he was angling, it was going to be revealing something. He wasn't there just to ask questions. I often wonder if he was making them accountable for what was going to happen when he would finally come into his ministry at 30 years of age and finally begin his teaching ministry. I wonder if he was provoking them and asking them, well, where should the Messiah come from? And the guy with the law would come up, well, he should come from Judea, from a town of Bethlehem, from Micah 5.2, and he should be a son of David. Oh, really? That's really interesting. Yeah. Well, where are you from, young man? Uh, I'm from from, uh, Bethlehem. I'm from a son of David. Yeah. Could it be you? Makes you wonder what they were talking about. Perhaps he was drawing them out, rehearsing before them the scriptures concerning himself, not revealing himself to them yet, but drawing them out. And they certainly were intrigued by this little man, this young man, excuse me, but little did they know at the Passover that the Passover lamb who was typified in Exodus chapter 12, who was prefigured in Exodus chapter 12, was standing right before them, the living lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world, was standing right before them, and yet they did not know it at the Feast of the Passover. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't have arranged this any better. On the Feast of the Passover, he's talking to the big shots. And he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the Passover Lamb. He is the firstborn He fit the type of the Passover lamb in Exodus 12 specifically. And here he was before them, and they didn't even know it. And and about 20 to 21 years later, from this point when he's 12 years old, Jesus would come back to Jerusalem, and he would say this in Matthew 23, verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. And he's pointing toward the temple. Your house, your house. It's supposed to be my house. It's supposed to be the house of God the Father, but you have made it a den of thieves. It is a a house of thievery and all uncleanness. It's your house now. And your house will be left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall not see me anymore until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it's interesting that as he is sitting there in the midst of the lawyers, the teachers, listening, asking them questions, that 700 years prior to that, the Lord, through the prophet Isaiah, was addressing the same people in Jerusalem In Isaiah chapter 1, what does it say? It says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos.
which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So Isaiah is seeing this vision, and it's concerning Judah and Jerusalem, 700 years prior to this moment when Jesus is listening and questioning them. And they're probably thinking to themselves, well, who's this little upstart? But boy, he's got some, he really packs a punch. He's telling us things, and how is he know? I mean, they were astonished. They were stumbled by his understanding. And of course, God, is, he's almighty God in the flesh. So he's, he, knows, he knows he wrote the word that they're talking about. He inspired the very word that they're talking about. But in Isaiah 11, so God is speaking to the same people in Judah and Jerusalem. And what does he say to them? Bring no more your sacrifices. And this is uh, beginning in verse 13. No more your sacrifices. Your incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and all the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the sacred meeting. God was fed up with Even uh, back then, he was fed up with the way that they had taken their relationship with God and they had made it into something legalistic and ritualistic and they removed God from the picture and now it was all about them and what they could get and it was very selfishly motivated and God is judging and basically using Isaiah to point a finger at them at you know 700 years prior to that moment that Jesus is there and, and we're going to get to the interesting thing here in just a minute but God is like you trouble me I am weary of bearing them you spread out your hands I will hide my eyes from you even though you make many prayers I will not hear your hands are full of blood. Wash yourself. Make yourself clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. And here we get to the verse. (laughs) Come now and let us reason together. Says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Do you realize how interesting this is? 700 years before Jesus is there in front of them, God says, let's reason together. And it just happens to be on the Passover, when the Passover lamb would be shed, his blood would be shed, and that will be on the lentil of the doorpost. So we're talking about the blood covering everything, and God is sharing that 700 years prior, and now Jesus is there on the Passover, and now he's reasoning with them. He's reasoning with them in the Scripture, and they are completely astonished. And so, verse 48, when they saw him, they were amazed, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? We've been looking for you for three days. Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. You might want to underline the word father there, And then underline it in verse 49 as well. You'll see the word father there. And he said to them, Jesus said to Mary and Joseph, Why did you seek me? Did you know that I must be about my father's business? Now underline that word. It's the Greek word pater or patir. It means father. But notice that in verse 48, it's lowercase. And in verse 49, it's uppercase. Even the translators knew that when Jesus said, I must be about my father's business, it wasn't about about Joseph's business. Jesus wasn't there to to work up some kind of uh, deals with people to come up to Nazareth for Joseph's carpentry business. He wasn't there handing out business cards. 
It wasn't about Joseph's business. It was about his father in heaven's business. And all the English translations have that capitalized in verse 49. To make the distinction, the word is the same, but the distinction is very clear. That it's not about Joseph, it's about Jesus' real father, God the Father. I love that. And Jesus, even in his early ministry, when he became 30, around 30 years of age, what did he do? One of the first things he did when he, when he came into his uh, ministry at 30 years of age, he cleansed the temple. And what did he say in John chapter 2, verse 16? He says, he, 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 took, uh, he went into and he cleansed the temple. And he says, do not make my father's house, my father's house, a house of merchandise. And of course, he's speaking of God the Father there. But did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Again, I believe that Jesus didn't waste anybody's time here. There was a reason he stayed behind and listened. And I'm sure that after this encounter, Jesus was a marked man. The religious leaders now knew who he was. And they're waiting for him the next time he comes because they're intrigued. They're wondering what's going on with this young man. And maybe Jesus sparred with them other times. We don't really know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But Jesus' priorities now were becoming clear as he got older, as he became unaware of what God's role for him was. And what was his role? What was his business? What was Jesus' business? Certainly the main thing was that he was, to bo- he was born to die to pay the price for your sin and mine and to offer salvation through his blood on the cross for those who believe in him. That was the main reason that Jesus came, was he was born to die for our sins. But also, Jesus, in, in Luke chapter 4, spoke this. Remember, he was in Nazareth. We, when we go to Israel, we actually went to the synagogue where Jesus spoke these very words. The very floor, the, the, unfortunately, the floor is the only thing that was, that was there that was uh, in Jesus' day. Everything around it had been rebuilt. But Jesus, in that Nazareth synagogue, he said he, he pulled out the scroll as a, as a young man would do or at, at that time when he was reading. And he opened up to Isaiah 61. And what was the... Uh, message there. And it says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Notice this was also Jesus's role or his business of his father to preach the gospel to the poor. And he was sent, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted and also to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovery of sight to the blind, not only physically, but spiritually removing blindness from people that they might understand spiritually what was happening, giving them light and also to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That's why Jesus came. That was Jesus' business. That was the Father's... That's, he was about the Father's business doing those things. But are we about our Father's business? It's a good question to ask. It's very easy for us to try and live the American dream... And there's nothing wrong with the American dream. But is your life the Lord Jesus or is Jesus just part of your life? The one speaks of 
total devotion, and the other just speaks of fitting Christ in here and there when it's convenient for me. And I want to encourage you this morning to not allow your relationship with Christ to be compartmentalized. We do that easily because we go to work and we, we, we're a certain person at work, we're a different person at home, we're a different person at church, and you know, God wants us to be the same wherever we go. We can't compartmentalize and say, well, uh, I'm a Christian at home and I'm a Christian at, at, at church, but when I go to work, I'm still laughing at the funny things on the walls and, you know, sending the dirty jokes and I do my own thing there. But, you know, do you understand, as a Christian, your life is, should be consistent, Wherever you go, you should be the same. You should be continually being conformed to God's will. And if I am fitting God in only in the holes of my life, then I'm compartmentalizing him. But I need to let him be my life instead of having him be be just a part of my life. And how do I do that? That means that wherever I go, I'm always thinking about the people that God loves. All the people that you work with or have worked with, the people that you interface with, your own family, your friends, the people you see at Wegmans, all these people need to hear. And if Christ is my life, then I'm going to speak of him. If he's not part of my life and only when it's convenient for me do I bring him along, then my life is compartmentalized. And if you find yourself in that place, it's easy to turn The first thing you have to do is acknowledge that it's happening and say, Lord, what's wrong with me? Am I I really afraid? I'm afraid of man, aren't I? I'm afraid of talking. I'm afraid of offending them. Hey, listen, the gospel is an offense because what are you basically saying? That you're a sinner on your way to hell, but there's good news. (laughs) How many people want to tell people about that? I mean, eventually it's got to come to that because that's the good news. But there's bad news first. And never, ever, ever remove the teeth from the gospel. When I say the teeth, I mean the thing that brings you to the end of yourself because that's the only way, folks. Because I don't need a healer. I don't need a savior unless I, I don't need to be saved. Unless I'm sick. If I'm sick, I need a healer. If I'm completely lost, I need a savior. I need to know that I'm lost. I need to know that I'm sick. And the scripture is right in my face. And it tells me that I am. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. These are the things that we need to lovingly share with people because that is God's business. Are we about our Father's business? And do we care for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow? There's a couple widows in our fellowship right now three of them that I know. I would encourage you to talk to them. See how they're doing. Do they have any needs? I mean, other than their family, if their family's taking care of them, praise the Lord, that's the right way to go about it. But is, is, there any, is there anybody here that's a widow who's not being taken care of? If not, we need to know. If you're really struggling, we need to know because it's our, it's our joy and our privilege to help you. And the fatherless, You know, do we love these people? Do we love the fatherless? There's so many fatherless kids nowadays. Learn to do justice, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. These are the things that are God's business. The Lord watches over the strangers. He relieves the fatherless and the widow. But the way of the wicked, he turns upside down. We are not our own. We belong to Christ. And if that is the case, then I am a tool that he can use to minister to other people. 
Notice what it says in uh, 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. I need to be about my Father's business. And my Father's business also includes this temple that we have. Are we taking care of that temple? And isn't that the great commission that Jesus gave us in Matthew 28? Remember after his resurrection and before his ascension, what did he say to his guys? He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. All the things that I've shown you, share that with others. That's our That's being about our Father's business. Paul would say to the Corinthians, If I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. He had such a heavy weight on him. He's like, you know what, God, you've done all of this for me. I'm going to spend eternity with you. I have a responsibility now with with this truth that you've given to me. With the Holy Spirit of God that you've placed within me, I have a responsibility before you to be about your business. And let me say this, folks, because you can be in a job. Not all of us have to be pastors, okay, or, or, or you know, evangelists or whatever like that. The Lord needs people in the workplaces. But when you're there, speak the truth in love when it's right to do it on your lunch hours, on your breaks, and little emails after work, whatever you got to do, but be salty. God wants you to be salt and light in a world that's broken and dying. So we need to do that. It's one of the biggest things right now in the church that I think that we're, we're not doing so good at. Are we reaching out to our neighbors, inviting them to the church? I mean, if you like it here, why not bring somebody? You know, we've become so closed off in our culture, in our neighborhoods, we can live next door to somebody for 30 years and not even know who they are. What's wrong with that? We can live next door to somebody who's been there for seven years and we've never said hi to them. We've never invited them over for dinner or for coffee. Why can't we as Christians break out of this mold and start inviting people? Invite them to church. And why? Is it just to fill the seats? No. I would to God we had no seats you know, empty. And why is that? Just to build a big church? No. It's because they need to hear the truth. I know what it's done in my life, what God is doing, and how excited I am. And we need to share that with others. We need to share with others. In Romans chapter 1, verse 14, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Are you ashamed of the gospel? You know you're ashamed of the gospel when you have an opportunity and you shrink. You're ashamed of the gospel. We ought not to be ashamed of the gospel. He's not ashamed of us. I don't want to be ashamed of him. And how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet. Notice, this is the way God sees somebody who is being about his father's business. He says, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace. Who bring glad tidings of good things. These are good things. 
what you're bringing is life. You're bringing truth. And, you know, let the pieces fall where they may, folks. You know, most of the people that we encounter, we're never going to see them again. And those are the easy ones to talk to. The hardest ones are your family members, that or that uncle that has grown up in an atheism who's just always swearing every time you get together at, at family gatherings. He's the tough guy. He needs to hear it too. I'm more concerned about what God thinks than what, how I'm going to feel about this whole thing because I know the truth and you know the truth and we need to share that truth. Are we about our Father's business? And folks, this is why it's so necessary for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Paul, when he was talking to the Ephesians, he says, And pray for me that utterance may be given to me, that I might open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. For I am an ambassador in chains, that I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Paul, on a number of occasions, was baptized with the Spirit of God in front of individuals, and God used him powerfully. Make that a daily prayer of yours. Say, Lord, baptize me whenever you want, because you want to reach somebody today. And there is a difference between when a person is baptized with the Spirit and when they are not. The same words can be spoken out of the same mouth, and one can make, have no impact at all, and the other, oh my goodness. And that is what God does. And I don't understand it, because it's a mystery. But he lights you up, and they're, they're captivated. Whoever's listening to you, they're, they're just like, they're stunned. They've never heard this before. That's when you know the Spirit of God is working. And be thankful for that. It's a joy to be used by God. If you've been used by God in anybody's life, you know what a joy it is. And you know, if you're hurting today and you're thinking, you know, I just don't have the courage, it's okay, pray for that. Pray for that, because we're not all cookie-cutter Christians. Some of us are really uh, timid, and we're afraid to do that, and others of you are really bold like lions, you know, and there's everybody in between. Don't be ashamed of that, but don't stay there. Because we need to be about our Father's business. Just as Jesus was about His Father's business, He's called us to be about His business as well. But notice in verse 50, they did not understand this statement which he spoke to them. And then he went down and made them, went down with them from Jerusalem, Jesus, and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. Notice that. But his mother kept all of these things in their heart. Notice that Jesus did not resist them, but he submitted himself to them. And he was obedient to his earthly parents. Yes, and he was also obedient to his heavenly father. What does it tell us in Philippians? And we'll wrap it up here. That Jesus humbled himself. That's what it says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And therefore, as a result of that, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Do you see Jesus' obedience? He was obedient even to the point of death on a cross, which is the most horrible form of death known to man. He was obedient to his parents he was on, on the earth, and he was also especially obedient to his father. That's why Jesus said, don't you know I must be about my father's business? And they marveled at this, but Mary kept it in her heart. Wonderful, isn't it? And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men.
And so, folks, let's seek to be like that. Let's seek to be about our Father's business. And don't be discouraged. In this culture that we live in today, it's especially hard to bring up the subject. It's especially hard. And the vast majority of people probably aren't going to listen to you. They might even change a topic, or maybe they'll just be bold enough to say, you know what, been there, done that, I, I, I'm, you know. But we ought to be willing, because every now and then you're going to run across somebody who's going to just fall apart, and you're going to be totally excited because you felt that stirring, the Lord was speaking to you, go speak to that woman over at Wegmans. That's happened to me a number of times where the Lord just gently just... I just got this feeling I should probably go speak to this person. I try to dismiss it, and the Lord's, okay, you can. I'll use somebody else. <laughs> but then I do it, and then I realize I was right on the money. And you go up to the person, you say, I don't know why I'm talking to you, but the Lord wanted me to come and pray for you. Can I pray for you? And they're like, you've got to be kidding me. This morning I woke up, and I'm like, God, if you're real, you've got to send somebody. Otherwise, I'm going to think this whole thing's a bunch of nonsense. And then God knows that, and he speaks to me and says, hey, just go over and encourage her. Nah, I don't think so. And then finally when you do, you realize that God was fixing, he was working that whole thing. He's putting it all together. There's no greater joy than to serve Jesus. There's no greater joy than being obedient to him. And I got to tell you, he loves you. He loves you more than you can possibly imagine. I mean, we know that he went on the cross for us, you know, but he... That love that he demonstrated while we were yet sinners. That's an other kind of love I've never experienced. And that's what crushed me. It crushed me under the weight of his love. I mean, who would do that for me? Nobody in the world would do that for me. And he wouldn't do it for you, but he did it. And he continues to do it. He's a God who loves. And he wants to bless your life. He wants your life to be a blessing. Raise your hand if you'd like your life to be a blessing. <laughs> I think we would all raise our hands and say, yes, Lord, I do. Then pray. Say, remove any, anything that's in me that's keeping me from being about your business, wherever I go, whenever, Lord. And there are times to be quiet. There are times to keep our mouths shut. But there are times when we need to be opening our mouth and not worrying about what man thinks of us. Don't worry about man. You're not going to stand before man. When we see Jesus face to face, folks, do you realize how that's going to, we're going to be like, I wish I had done a lot more. And he's not going to kick you out of heaven because you didn't take every opportunity. But I miss out because it's a joy to share with people and to see their lives changed, to see their eyes brighten up, to see them encouraged in something other than the filth of this world. That is totally amazing. I love that. Let's pray. Father, we just uh, thank you for this passage. We thank you, Lord. Uh, Lord, that you desire to use us. And Lord, we do pray that we would be about your business. And pray that you'd strengthen us, Lord. Give us boldness and wisdom. Give us encouragement, Lord, and uh, Lord, just faith to trust you, to believe in you. 
Lord, change us. Change me, God. I need to be changed. And I know my brothers and sisters, they need to be changed as well, Lord. We all need to be changed. And Lord, thank you for your love that even the baby steps that we make, Lord, you're not upset with those. In fact, you applaud every little step that we make, Lord, regardless of how old we are. So help us to continue. Help us to be about our Father's business. Lord, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name.